The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. The longest shutdown in history just got longer. This is Thursday, January 24th, 2019. Thank you for supporting this independent news by patronizing my sponsors and through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. Welcome to the 34th day of the Trump government shutdown. We could be in for 60 more days, each with worse consequences than the day before. Despite a vote today in the Senate, it will stay shut down a while longer, and the president is subtly threatening to keep it closed into March. On his orders, the White House is requesting a list of federal programs that would suffer collapse if the shutdown were to last, say, another 60 days. It has been a long-standing Republican dream to shrink government. This just might be their moment. Trump budget director Mick Mulvaney says he wants that list in his hands by tomorrow. Meanwhile, the ramifications of the shutdown are spreading wider and hurting more deeply. Food stamp money runs out in a week. Also in a week, federal workers who are still getting health insurance benefits will start having to pay for their own dental and vision insurance. Because of its urgency and its importance, we'll examine the shutdown thoroughly. After the latest look at the man being investigated as a possible agent of the Russian government, who's at the center of it all. People have been telling lies since before there were words. Politicians made an art of it, some lying more artfully than others. The lies of politicians in modern American history, with some stark exceptions, have been more like exaggerations, half-truths, and innuendo to sell themselves to the voters or to push their political agenda, often financed by special interests. We got used to that, figured that's how the game is played, and for a long time, it was. Sure, there were the occasional big and sometimes deadly lies from I am not a crook to WMDs in Iraq and Mission Accomplished, but for the most part, half-truths were the stuff of politics. And then came Donald Trump, who, as President of the United States, sometimes tells the American people over 100 lies a day. He talks, or tweets, a lot. The more he talks, the more he deceives, often just out of ignorance of the facts, but also to deceive as in no collusion. And he repeats himself a lot, driving up his count exponentially. Because he is the president, someone should keep track for historical reference, if nothing else. Perhaps for a future psychology textbook. A lot of someones do keep track of Trump's misleading remarks. But keeping up with an itchy Twitter finger is more than a full-time job, since the tweeting starts well before dawn and continues past midnight 30 with a lot of tweeting and talking in between. As a Washington Post fact-checker explained it to The Guardian, you could wake up and the president may have already had five or six tweets that cry out for fact-checks. It's exhausting, said the fact-checker at the New York Times. We haven't had a break, said the director of the nonpartisan factcheck.org. And people count on this fact-checking, now more than ever. Fact-check says its web traffic rose 350% in 2018. In October, in the run-up to the midterms in which Trump would receive an electoral beating by proxy, he said 1,200 false or misleading things. That's an average of 40 lies per day, assuming he squeezes in six hours sleep somewhere. That's just over two lies per hour. He spouted well over 8,000 falsehoods in his first two years as president. I would like to write about other things, says Fact Check's director, but it is what it is. And accepting that's the way it is, is a dark turn for the nation to take.
Trump also has a lawyer to do some of the talking. It's his TV lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, chosen and tasked by Trump to go defend the president on TV. That seems to be Giuliani's main and perhaps only job. He has, it appears, one job. And it appears he's not doing it very well. Uh, Not at all. Not the TV part. Not the lawyer part. Republicans loyal to Trump have called the White House to say maybe Rudy shouldn't go on TV in the evenings after he's had a drink or two. At one point, Giuliani blurted out that he'd heard the tapes while he was denying there were any tapes. When called on it, he corrected himself to say he meant some other tapes, not about this. Newsweek reports Trump's been advised to ditch Giuliani, but although Trump's said to be disappointed in Rudy's weekend appearances, insiders say Rudy's job is secure for now. In an extraordinary interview last week on CNN, Giuliani blurted that he'd, quote, never said there was no collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia. But Giuliani's client, the president himself, who we can statistically conclude is probably lying, has denied it dozens of times. Absolutely no collusion, Trump told reporters outside the White House last month. That, he said, has been proven. Trump himself has repeatedly and directly denied that his campaign had no involvement with Russia, when in fact the campaign manager was giving election data to Russian operatives during the campaign and while Russia was cyber-attacking the U.S. Rudy had started out the 20-minute interview doing his client's bidding, attacking what he called false reporting of the Russia investigation and repeating the falsehood that collusion is not a crime. Interviewer Andrew Cuomo called out that lie, prompting Giuliani to walk it back the next day, saying he's the president's lawyer and only speaks for the president, not for the campaign. In other words, Rudy was saying there may have been collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia, but the Trump knew nothing about it. Which is another way of saying that Trump's key campaign people, which include his son and his son-in-law, might be guilty. But not the president, who Giuliani says didn't know anything about it. And yeah, that there might have been collusion. It was just after the 2016 election that the Trump White House declared there were no communications between the Trump campaign and Russia. After that declaration was repeated in February of 2017, Donald Trump Jr. revealed in March that, well, yes, there were communications, but no meetings were planned out of that. In early July, we learned there was a planned meeting with Russians that took place at Trump Tower, but that it was about adoptions and not about the campaign. By December, Giuliani started claiming that collusion isn't a crime. Officially, the crime is conspiracy, but prosecutors commonly use the synonym collusion as well. Collusion is the crime of conspiracy. In May of 2018, Giuliani claimed that even if the Trump campaign got usable information from Russia, it was never used, meaning no actual collusion. In July, Trump claimed there couldn't have been collusion because he said he doesn't even know Putin. Later that month, Giuliani was repeating the falsehood that collusion is not a crime and that the president's not guilty because the Russian attack was hacking and Trump, reasoned his TV lawyer, doesn't know how to hack. But Trump wasn't shy about accepting outside help. Months before announcing his candidacy, his company hired a contractor named John Gogger, who tried to rig the online polls at CNBC and the Drudge Report to make Trump appear to be a business genius and a top Republican choice for president. For his work, which, by the way, was unsuccessful, 
John Gogger billed the Trump Organization $50,000. What he got instead of payment in full was a blue Walmart sack containing the boxing glove of a mixed martial arts fighter and twelve or 13000 of the 50000 he was owed. But a story about a stack of cash and a boxing glove and a Walmart bag wouldn't be complete without a televangelist in there, now would it? It seems Mr. Gogger got this gig because he's the top IT guy at Liberty University, the Christian college led by TV's right reverend Jerry Falwell. The Walmart bag o' money, complete with boxing glove, was handed the televangelist employee in Trump Tower by a Mr. Michael Cohen, who was then Trump's trusted fix-it lawyer. We learned this through some excellent reporting by the Wall Street Journal, prompting Cohen to confirm that he had, in fact, handed off that Walmart bag and regrets his blind loyalty to, quote, a man who doesn't deserve it. Cohen said he paid that man his money at the direction of Donald J. Trump. Bull S. responded Rudy Giuliani, who went on in a single breath to say that both the story is not true and that if it is true, our president knew nothing about it. So it's either true or it's not. For Giuliani, any news story is a lie, unless it's the truth, in which case it doesn't involve Mr. Trump. Those who know Trump's micromanagerial style suspect he does. After the attempted poll rigging at CNBC failed, Trump tweeted in frustration, stupid poll should be canceled, no credibility. It was a week ago today that BuzzFeed reporters Jason Leopold and Anthony Cormier reported that President Trump had directed Michael Cohen to lie to Congress about the Trump Tower project. If true, it means the president committed the crime of obstruction of justice through witness tampering, which would oblige Congress to start impeachment. The report took the nation on a neck-snapping and emotional roller coaster that lasted into the next day. And midway through that ride, the spokesman for the special counsel, Robert Mueller, did something he rarely does. He spoke, or more correctly, asserted that specific statements in the BuzzFeed report were not accurate, along with BuzzFeed's characterization of what Mueller has specifically in terms of witnesses and documents. Mueller's office did not say that the conclusion of the BuzzFeed story was wrong, just that some of the supporting material in it was. But it gave Trump and his supporters an unnecessary opportunity to again call Michael Cohen a liar. Even Trump and Giuliani believed the BuzzFeed story to be true at first. When it later appeared the story had a couple of things wrong, they were back to claiming fake news. But now, a week later, BuzzFeed is still standing by its reporting and its two federal law enforcement sources. According to those sources, which appear to be from inside the Mueller sphere, when Michael Cohen suggested Trump meet Putin face-to-face -to, -face to seal the Trump Tower Moscow deal, Trump replied, quote, make it happen. BuzzFeed says its story will be borne out. In the meantime, BuzzFeed is asking the special counsel's office to explain exactly which parts of its reporting are inaccurate. That's not likely to happen, considering Mueller's close-to-the-vest style. The rest of the news media pounced on the BuzzFeed story, all media emphasizing the words, if true, in their reporting. And with hopes and fears dashed and raised in one 24-hour period, America was taken on another wild ride. One way to gauge the overall accuracy of the BuzzFeed report is to put it alongside things we already know. We know that Michael Cohen did lie to Congress about the Trump Tower Moscow talks during the campaign. Cohen has since confessed to that and apologized for it. 
Cohen testified that he acted out of loyalty to Trump. He did not say at the time whether it was or wasn't at the direction of Trump. He didn't say it wasn't. We know that Cohen has pleaded guilty to federal felony charges of congressional perjury and that he is cooperating with prosecutors on that and numerous other things in hopes of getting his sentence reduced and clearing his name to the extent that that's possible. We know that Trump supporters like to point out that Cohen is a proven liar and can't be trusted now, even though what Cohen's saying now will decide whether he watches his kids grow up or whether he spends much of his life in prison because Mr. Mueller knows the truth. In his sentencing recommendation for Cohen, Mueller pointed to Cohen's credible and consistent information. So Mueller believes Cohen is not a liar, at least not about this anymore. Mueller also said in that court filing that Cohen, quote, described the circumstances of preparing his response to congressional inquiries. Quoting Mueller in that document, the information provided by Cohen about the Moscow Project is consistent with and corroborated by other information obtained in the course of the special counsel's investigation, which is what the BuzzFeed story was saying. It's Mueller's reason for not going harder on Cohen for lying to Congress, and it's BuzzFeed's reason for believing it's very much on the right track. We also know that Cohen's cooperation is so valuable to Mueller The special counsel recommended no additional prison time in spite of this additional serious crime of lying to Congress. Former federal prosecutor Chuck Rosenberg, now with NBC News, says his take is that Mueller is not disputing the core of the BuzzFeed story and in some ways reinforcing it. Rosenberg says Mueller is only pushing back on aspects of the BuzzFeed story and that Mueller likely held back from his court filing things he may know but is not yet ready to reveal either to the public or to his persons of interest. Rosenberg says that if the BuzzFeed report were categorically wrong, the special counsel's office would have said so. And Rosenberg says Mueller is still playing it close to the vest, but says he's not sure why, after all the many journalistic scoops on the Russia probe, why the Mueller team would push back only on this one. Other reporters at other outlets tried to confirm or disprove the BuzzFeed report, but they could do neither. Cohen won't comment, perhaps because he's not allowed to, under the terms of his plea deal with Robert Mueller. With Trump calling it a sad day for journalism, there was a lot on the line for all reporters and all mainstream media outlets. But after all the ups and downs and up-agains of the BuzzFeed report, that story is not dead, and BuzzFeed may not be wrong. And if true, then the president would have committed high crimes and misdemeanors for which Congress has an obligation to impeach. One way or another, it would mean the end of the Trump presidency. So did Trump talk with his otherwise estranged fix-it lawyer just before Cohen lied to Congress? Rudy to the rescue once again, Giuliani saying Trump might have spoken with Cohen about his testimony, but quote, so what if he talked to him about it? Giuliani says it was probably an attorney-client privilege thing and that Trump did not counsel Cohen to lie, so so far as he knows. Quoting Trump's TV lawyer, I I wasn't there then. Giuliani wasn't around when Trump and Cohen were talking about building a Trump Tower in Moscow and while Trump was lying to voters that he had no business dealings in Russia. There go those lies again that may just be pointing to the truth. When the BuzzFeed story first broke, Democrats up and down the ranks were demanding investigations, and in some cases, they were talking impeachment. Adam Schiff, the head of the House Intelligence Committee, vowed to investigate. A similar remark from House Judiciary Chair Jerry Nadler. 
Mark Warner, the vice chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, wants Cohen back for more testimony now that Cohen is telling a different story. And thinking Mueller had found a smoking gun, down the line, one congressional Democrat after another called for impeachment. Texas Congressman Joaquin Castro tweeted, if true, President Trump must, quote, resign or be impeached. If a president cannot be indicted for a crime, as some scholars claim, then impeachment is the nation's only remedy. Otherwise, we get a president who is above the law. A president whose campaign conspired with Russians to tilt the election toward himself. A president who's been under FBI investigation for being a witting or unwitting agent of the Russian government and who has lied and obstructed that investigation every step of the way. A president who takes away notes from interpreters after meeting with Russia's president while praising Russia's president. A president of the United States who lies about nearly everything. Michael Cohen is nervous. He was scheduled to testify for Congress and on national TV two weeks from today, vowing to answer honestly this time all the questions put to him. ABC News says Cohen's told friends he believes Trump's repeated attacks on him could inspire some unstable person to harm him or his family. Trump even brought Cohen's wife and her family into it, saying investigators should really look at Cohen's father-in-law because, quoting Trump, that's the money in the family. But there is no indication that Cohen's wife's dad is the subject of any criminal inquiry. Cohen says his wife has been threatened as well. Cohen himself has been the target of Trump name-calling, weak, a liar, and the mobster favorite, a rat. Still, Cohen takes that as intimidation and is now delaying his testimony until he feels it is the appropriate time. Through his lawyer, Cohen says he is still cooperating with investigators and that he looks forward to testifying when the time comes. No indication of when that time might be. Lawyer Lanny Davis points to ongoing threats against his family from President Trump and his attorney, Rudy Giuliani, as recently as this past weekend. Trump says Cohen is, quote, only threatened by the truth. But Cohen and his lawyer may be making a case for witness tampering through intimidation, and the new Democratic Congress is listening and investigating the possible witness tampering and obstruction of justice. So will Michael Cohen ever testify? Oversight Chairman Elijah Cummings and Intelligence Chairman Adam Schiff say Cohen's family has been threatened repeatedly by Trump and Giuliani for the purpose of discouraging him from testifying, and they are offering Mr. Cohen extra security for himself and his family. But Cummings and Schiff say voluntarily or by subpoena, Cohen will testify. Stay tuned. Might not have been good news for Donald Trump when his choice for attorney general told Congress that if the president tried to coach the testimony of anyone, that would be obstruction of justice. Counseling witnesses was the first charge in the impeachment of Richard Nixon. William Barr had been chosen by Trump as the person most likely to protect him in court. Trump still failing to understand that he is not the job of an attorney general. Trump appears to have chosen Barr because Barr had written a memo critical of the Mueller probe. Trump could not have known that Barr would promise Congress obstruction charges against a president who suborned perjury or discouraged someone from talking. Trump also didn't know, apparently, that William Barr is a close, longtime friend of special counsel Robert Mueller. 
I've known Bob for 30 years, Barr told lawmakers last week, adding, we worked closely together throughout my tenure at the Justice Department under President Bush. We've been friends since. I have the utmost respect for Bob and his distinguished record of public service. Barr went on to add that he had confidence in Mueller's work all along, up to and including the day of his own testimony. Barr said he wouldn't be bullied by anyone, including the president. He promised not to stop the investigation, not to fire Mueller without good cause, and to release as much as he can of the Mueller report. Still, questions linger about Barr as Trump's attorney general, who stands to play a major role in the future of this president and this country. In a memo written by Barr last year, he claimed Trump was not obstructing justice when he asked the FBI's Jim Comey to see his way clear to drop the investigation of Mike Flynn. Barr says the president clearly left it up to Comey and that a normal subordinate, in his words, would not have found these comments obstructive. Barr also wrote in that memo he believes the president has broad powers, including the power to act on a matter in which he has a personal stake, obviously in this case, the Russia probe. Except for California Democrat Dianne Feinstein, no lawmaker asked Barr about these things. In answering her, Barr said that when he wrote that memo, he didn't have all the facts, a frightening mode of operation for a would-be attorney general. Barr also has said he won't necessarily recuse himself from the investigation and that he won't necessarily abide by the advice of the ethics officials in the Justice Department, should they recommend he do so. Still, Barr is likely to be confirmed as our next Attorney General. Stay tuned. But we also learned this week that Robert Mueller, like the FBI, has taken an interest in the NRA and its ties to the 2016 Trump campaign. Former Trump campaign aide Sam Nunberg spilled that news on CNN. Neither Mueller's office nor the NRA will comment on that revelation. The NRA was already under FBI and congressional investigation for its ties to both the Trump campaign and Russians, including Maria Butina, the spy who's pleaded guilty to infiltrating U.S. gun groups and other conservative groups on behalf of the Russian government to try to influence American policy. Congress found that the NRA had gotten cash contributions from more than 20 Russian nationals in 2015 and 2016. The NRA then made an unusually large donation to the Trump campaign, $30 million, more than it had ever donated to any presidential campaign before. Donald Trump Jr. met briefly with a Russian banker close to Putin at the NRA's 2016 convention as banker Alexander Torshin tried to establish back-channel communications with Team Trump. The meeting never happened, but Jr. did meet later with Maria Butina. As federal investigators close in on this president, he continues his attacks on the FBI and former director James Comey, and he conducted his recent attacks with still more lies and misleading claims that the FBI broke in to Michael Cohen's office when, in fact, it had a legal warrant. Cohen himself noted at the time that the FBI agents were respectful, professional, and courteous. But in late December, less than two weeks before he would shut down government, Trump accused the Bureau of doing the unthinkable and unheard of, when, in fact, such raids are very thinkable and absolutely heard of among sane, normal people. Two days later, Trump lied again, falsely accusing the Bureau of intentionally deleting thousands of texts between former agent Peter Strzok and former FBI lawyer Lisa Page, and again called the FBI investigation into him 
a hoax. Just after the first of the year, FBI agents arrested a man in Georgia who was allegedly plotting to use an anti-tank weapon and other explosives to burst through a rear door of the White House and then kill as many people as possible. By sometime last year, Georgia's 21-year-old hasher Jalal Tahab turned radical and decided to become a martyr for his beliefs. One of Tahab's neighbors contacted the bureau to report the young man had become radicalized and that the young man was planning to travel abroad. So undercover agents went to work, getting an informant to get close to him and ultimately selling Tahab what he believed were the weapons he needed, three semi-automatic assault rifles, three IEDs, plus a remote control and a single-shot anti-tank weapon. He reportedly offered his SUV as payment to the undercover agents. Tahab allegedly showed the agents diagrams of the West Wing he'd drawn in a notebook. He allegedly shared his plans to also attack the Washington Monument, the Lincoln Memorial, and a synagogue in D.C. When Tahab received what he thought were weapons from the agents, and after they explained how to use them, he loaded everything into a rental car. And that's when they arrested him. This dangerous work was carried out by FBI agents who weren't getting paid at the time, and they haven't been paid since. Not getting paid their five-figure salaries while they try to raise a family in the cities where their field offices are located. Those agents who dealt with a potential terrorist are not even getting reimbursed, as usual, for their expenses that can include guns, cars, drugs, weapons, and frequently airline tickets. The bills from their FBI credit cards aren't getting paid. And tomorrow, those agents, like the folks at Homeland Security and the TSA and the Secret Service, will miss their second consecutive paycheck as the Trump government shutdown continues now solidly into a second month. Morale is low. More than 10% of our TSA agents are calling in sick. That's more than three times the usual number. That, by the way, is the last count you'll hear since TSA officials have ordered their subordinates at airports around the country to stop reporting the specific numbers of call-outs. Among the 800,000 federal workers not getting paid, thousands are finding other work as substitute teachers and Uber drivers. Also not getting paid, federal corrections officers who protect us from the nation's most dangerous criminals. Members of the U.S. Coast Guard, the first time in American history that part of our military force has gone unpaid. Morale is low across the board, but nowhere is that more dangerous than among the people who keep us safe. Those who can leave their furloughed government jobs are doing just that, and recruiting good replacements won't be easy now that the nation has just seen how insecure a federal government job can be. When it comes to the FBI, file this under kick them while they're down. Public faith in the FBI has eroded, but especially among voters in the Trump Republican Party. More than three out of four Democrats still like the FBI. But a Pew Center tracking poll finds that in the past two years, the number of Republicans and Republican-leaning independent voters who view the FBI favorably has fallen 16%. Fewer than half the conservative voters trust the FBI. Fewer than half the voters in what once claimed to be the law and order party. This is convenient for Donald Trump who's made it a point to continue his attacks on the agency that's investigated him. And with federal law enforcement straining under the weight of this shutdown, the Trump attack on the FBI had just gotten a lot more intense. 
aided and abetted by Senate Republicans, President Trump took hostage the U.S. government 34 days ago, refusing to sign any funding bill until he gets money for his border wall. Give me the wall or the government gets it. Early in his presidency, he had taken hostage the DREAM Act, an executive order by President Obama, allowing a path to citizenship for many of the undocumented people brought to the U.S. as children. The Obama order protecting millions from deportation. Starting with an executive order of his own, Trump has labored to completely kill the program known also as DACA. This week, hoping to lure Democrats into talking with him about that wall, Trump offered to bring back DACA temporarily for three years, but only if they give him the $5.7 million to build his wall. If the president couldn't get wall money for the government he'd held hostage, he'd offer up a different hostage, the Dreamers, at least for a while. Democrats won't talk about a wall no way, no how. And they've continued to pass House bills to reopen the government, knowing Trump would veto them, even if they did pass the Senate, which they wouldn't. The Republican-controlled Senate would not, until this week, even consider voting on Democratic plans to reopen the government if it's something that Trump wouldn't sign, and Trump won't sign anything unless it has that nearly $6 billion for a wall. Instead of acting as a check and balance on this president, instead of acting as a co-equal branch of the government and not as an extension of the executive branch, the Republican-controlled Senate was shirking its constitutional duty and instead doing the bidding of a man who now defines their party and one who is under investigation for collusion with Russia. Most of the blame was heaped on Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who refused to even allow a vote. A poll of Republican senators showed that 40 of the 60 would vote no on reopening the government if the bill didn't have that wall money, so McConnell's point about a vote being pointless had some merit. But the Senate was finally coming off the bench today for the first time since the shutdown began, although the measure to reopen government was expected to fail to get the two-thirds majority vote it needs, and the same fate was expected for a bill to fund the wall. But agreeing to vote on both or each of these things marks the first time that Republicans and Democrats in that body have agreed on anything in 34 days. And it spawned hope that under pressure to end the shutdown, both parties will try to negotiate a way out of this Trumpian loop. The Trump fight to kill DACA had finally made its way to the United States Supreme Court. Trump was expecting a quick answer and a ruling that Obama's executive order granting protection to kids who grew up American was illegal or unconstitutional. The Trump administration had asked the court to review DACA and rule that he has the authority to end it with an order of his own that lower courts have struck down for being baseless and legally sketchy. Instead, the United States Supreme Court put off hearing that case until sometime next year. That means the DREAM Act that the president had taken hostage will stand until the case comes back to the court to be heard. He was wrong about getting a quick ruling. He was wrong to think the court would immediately rule in his favor. He was wrong to think that his order to end DACA could finally go into effect, and he had also lost a bargaining chip. One of the president's two hostages had escaped, and he was down to just one those 800,000 furloughed federal workers. Trump could no longer dangle the dreamers in front of Democrats to get them to build his wall. Nothing is working, and he's running out of options. And besides the personal effect it has on those furloughed workers, it's damaging Americans' faith in Trump's ability to steer the economy, his favorite bragging point. 
There are increased calls for Trump to end the shutdown and to end his trade wars, both of which stand to damage the economy. This past week, the University of Michigan's Consumer Sentiment Index fell to its lowest point in the Trump presidency and well below what was forecasted. The recently slumping and erratic stock market had some impact on these new numbers, but most of the blame for the confidence drop goes to Trump's trade war and his government shutdown, according to university researchers. Their work is borne out in a similar poll by SurveyMonkey for the New York Times. Economic confidence surged after the midterm election in November, but fell sharply when Trump closed government to hold out for his wall. At the start of last year, fewer than one in four of us thought the economy was worse than the year before. At the start of this year, nearly a third of us think the economy's gotten worse, as we cite the shutdown in our survey answers. You're not going to make a major purchase if you're worried about the economy about to take a major downturn, wrote a guy in technology sales. My income, he says, is pretty directly tied to how the whole economy is doing. And when people stop buying things, the whole economy suffers. And it all starts with 800,000 unpaid federal workers. It ends when it starts to affect Trump's voter base. When it comes to shutting down the government over a border wall, 71% of us disapprove According to a new CBS News poll, that puts Trump's base on this issue at 29% at best. Two weeks ago, we examined numbers that show Americans blame Trump and his party much more than the Democrats for this record-setting government shutdown. This week, a new Marist poll for public broadcasting shows that Trump's net approval rating dropped seven points over this time last month. And a lot of that was in Trump's precious base of supporters. While most Republicans and nearly all evangelicals still cling to Trump, his support among white suburban men has dropped 18 points in the past month. Among men without college degrees, a key part of Trump's base, his approval rating has dropped seven points in the past month. In the words of a man shopping for coveralls at Walmart, I was doing fine with him until this government shutdown. It's ridiculous, he told a reporter for the Washington Post, adding, you're not getting the wall and Mexico's not paying for it. Fatigue is also setting in. Quoting a woman who voted for Trump, the wall is getting out of hand. I'm sick of hearing about it. Something miraculous has to happen, she said, for me to vote for him again. A Michigan man voted for Trump because, like others, he was disgusted with politics and wanted to shake up things. He liked the idea of a turn-over-the-tables kind of president. Now the 49-year-old says, what the F were we thinking? But Trump listens to his base, what's left of it, and members of that base speak loud and clear about their shared desire to build that wall, and they say loudly and clearly that if Trump folds on this, he will lose their support. Trump is taking cues from conservative media and from his dwindling base and his immigrant-hating advisors. He at first agreed to sign a bill to fund government without a wall until it came under attack from the likes of Breitbart and Ann Coulter. Then he offered up the Dreamers to entice Democrats to fund the wall, whereupon conservative media tore into him about allowing the amnesty they dread for undocumented residents. Having already alienated the rest of the country, Trump is now trapped in this shutdown loop between reopening the government and angering his base, which consists of fewer than four out of ten voters, Trump's disapproval rating has hit an all-time high, 57%, nearly 6 out of 10 of us, according to a poll just out from Politico. 40% of us approve of Trump, while an even smaller number support him enthusiastically. 
But history shows Trump always sides with his base. Still, his every move, now made without what's been described as adult supervision, is costing him politically. He's begun to upset the only people left to support him by hurting their economy and by showing weakness and threatening to abandon part of a tough immigration policy. Tomorrow marks the second paycheck this month, missed by 800,000 federal workers and thousands of government contractors, too. All the places they normally had lunch are now empty at midday. The best and brightest government workers are now looking for something more steady. And those left behind are looking for people who still think a government job would be a sweet deal. Oh, and with so many IRS workers now calling in sick to go where they can earn some money, your uh, tax refund may be delayed. 60% of IRS workers in Kansas City who have a hardship clause in their union contract are refusing the agency's order to come back to work with no pay. Hundreds of IRS workers simply are not showing up as the first tax returns are being dropped in the mail by taxpayers. The IRS workers who process those refunds at 12 bucks an hour cannot afford to go back to work at a job with no pay. Salon.com's Bob Seska believes he knows why the Trump shutdown could go on for a very long time. Bob? Thanks, Buzz. We should probably brace ourselves for an extended Trump shutdown because there's ultimately no reason for the president to end his ongoing temper tantrum. He straight up needs this. Even though his poll numbers are crashing, the longer the shutdown continues, the less time we're discussing the other catastrophes circulating around the White House. There's continued news about Trump Tower Moscow, of course, with BuzzFeed dumping a series of documents showing how much planning had gone into the project, along with the details of Michael Cohen's footwork to line it up. There's the so-hilarious-it-hurts-my-stomach meltdown of Rudy Giuliani, which happens to be my personal favorite news story of the month. His accidental blurting of the truth is becoming legendary, with the word befuddled barely sufficing as a means to describe Rudy's bizarrely worsening dementia. His remarks to The New Yorker are especially weird. This quote in particular cracks me the hell up. Quote, I am afraid it will be on my gravestone. Rudy Giuliani, he lied for Trump. Somehow, I don't think that will be it. But if it is, so what do I care? I'll be dead. Unquote. And then there's also this exchange in which Rudy Giuliani said, because I have been through all the tapes, I have been through all the texts, I have been through all the emails, and I knew none existed. And then basically, when the special counsel said that, just in case there are any others I might not know about, they probably went through others and found the same thing, to which the New Yorker replied, wait, what tapes have you gone through? And then Rudy said, I shouldn't have said tapes. I've never seen an old man shoveling so vigorously. There's also news on Wednesday that the number of Americans with health insurance has dropped throughout the first two years of Trump's presidency. According to Gallup, around 7 million adults have dropped out of the system. No shocker there, of course, given how Trump and his enablers in Congress have systematically undermined the Affordable Care Act, including and especially the untimely death of the individual mandate, a cornerstone of the law that made sure everyone had skin in the game. There's also distressing word this week that Robert Mueller's grand jury will run out of money by Friday. Likewise, the shutdown is impacting the FBI's ability to do its thing. 
Per Reuters, FBI agents have lost irreplaceable sources. Joint Terrorism Task Force officers can't get into the Bureau's computer systems. Federal investigations are being stymied by a lack of resources. The partial government shutdown has become a serious national security threat, the FBI Agents Association said on Tuesday. Make no mistake, this is fantastic news if you're the president and you're being investigated for a variety of crimes, several of which involve not just you, but your children. Crippling the ability of the FBI and the D.C. federal grand jury is a huge bonus for Trump. Any one of these stories would have led every newscast and appeared above the fold on every newspaper front page were it not for the shutdown. And like most shutdowns, this one began as just another temporary glitch. But the longer it lasts, the more treacherous it gets. Not only is it superseding other chunks of bad news for the Trumps, it's also sending a thrill up the tiny legs of Vladimir Putin, who's absolutely getting his money's worth with Trump's constant disruption of American democracy, culminating in the indefinite closure of the entire U.S. federal government. For Putin, it's the gift that keeps on giving. His compromise stooge in the White House has closed the government until whenever. And among the myriad upsides for Putin is news that various government agencies haven't been able to update the security certificates for the corresponding websites, leaving the sites vulnerable to, yeah, hackers. And just as the 2020 presidential election season is warming up in the garage. Knowing the landscape, there's absolutely zero reasons for Trump to back down now. It's keeping all of the aforementioned bad news out of the headlines while sabotaging the investigations into his crimes. Plus, there's bonus points from small government conservatives like Grover Norquist, whose stated goal for decades has been to drown the government in the bathtub. At some point soon, we should expect to hear Trump and Fox News downplaying the impact of the government being closed. Indeed, one anonymous Trump official is quoted as saying he'd be okay if most federal employees don't return to work. Furthermore, I can totally envision Trump appearing at a rally, arms outstretched, as he tells his disciples, anyone here miss the government being open? Everything's just fine, isn't it? Police are still patrolling the streets. MS-13 is still being rounded up. Don't worry about it. Believe me. Well, it goes without saying the Red Hats are totally fine with it. And should Trump ever decide to capitulate on the wall, he knows that most of his racist supporters will surely look around for an alternative candidate in 2020, given how his base is literally the only thing standing between him and the first impeachment conviction in American presidential history. He needs every screeching cultist he can muster. Without happy red hats, the Republican Party will definitely cut bait with Trump, at least enough Republicans to make a difference in Congress. Unless the Democrats and or the Senate Republicans decide to stick it to Trump with a funding bill that passes with a veto-proof majority, or unless the House Democrats cave, this shutdown could extend through the winter and perhaps even beyond, with commensurate disasters dropping every day. I'm not feeling very positive, obviously, about the trajectory of this thing. Not with an irrational maniac on one end of Pennsylvania Avenue and Mitch McConnell with his Russian cash and his slippery obnoxiousness on the other end. If Putin's goal was to blackmail Trump into disrupting the functioning of the entire U.S. government, well then, mission accomplished. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob. Get more of Bob with a subscription at patreon.com slash Show or Tuesdays and Thursdays at realmnetwork.com. He'll have a fresh edition this afternoon. I join Bob on his show every Tuesday. 
Congressional Democrats, led by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, are fighting back, acting as a check and balance, as Congress is constitutionally obligated to do. At first, Pelosi advised Trump that perhaps it would be best if he delayed the State of the Union address she'd invited him to give until after the shutdown has ended. She cited security concerns, but it was also about the shutdown tantrum over his wall. Trump tried to bully his way in, sending in the usual advance team and announcing he would speak to Congress this coming Tuesday, despite Pelosi's polite advice to stay away. But then she told him he would not receive a formal invitation to speak and that he would not be officially invited until government is up and running again. She told him the speech he had announced was off. If Trump could take hostages, so could Pelosi. And as Speaker, she has the authority to refuse to invite him. And she did. It is the first time since Woodrow Wilson's day that a president hasn't been invited to give this annual address. Trump was caught off guard and stunned and accused Pelosi of not wanting to, quote, hear the truth. The truth, as told by a consistently lying president. Team Trump scrambled to find a new venue. Two speeches were in development. One for if he speaks in a rally-type setting. The other for if he speaks from the East Room of the White House. Trump reportedly wasn't crazy about either idea. A rally, he believes, is too informal for a State of the Union address, and given the low ratings of his recent Oval Office address, he's not excited about another one of those either. So late last night, Trump conceded to Nancy Pelosi, bowed to her insistence that the speech be put off until after the shutdown is ended, if or when it ever ends. In the meantime, Trump is weaker now that he has a Congress that isn't entirely run by Republicans. Democrats now plan to take the lead by offering Trump money for border security, maybe even the whole $5.7 billion, so long as not a penny of it is spent on building a wall, and so long as government is reopened immediately. That would show that Democrats are far more serious about border security than Trump has claimed and it would give him his $5.7 billion, a possible way to save face. It just wouldn't give him the wall. The president could agree to end this shutdown, but it would be awfully disappointing to Sean Hannity at Fox News, and so far that means everything to Trump. In the midst of this chaos, the Trump anti-immigration policies march on. His administration had already reported that about 2,700 children had been separated from their parents, but this past week, we learned that the family separations actually began shortly after Trump took office in 2017. That means thousands more than the 2,700 have been ripped from the arms of their parents since Trump became president. And if that news can get worse, it is in the revelation that there was a weak system for tracking kids in the early days, and as a result, there are no hard numbers on how many kids were snatched. Nearly a 1,000 children were never even identified. As congressional Democrats wrest control of the immigration issue away from the president, they plan to investigate the cruelty of Trump's immigration policies, plural. And the American Civil Liberties Union, which has helped us learn much of what we know about the family separation policy, says that with these new revelations, it'll be hauling the Trump administration back into court. 
27-year-old Jilmar Ramos Gomez wound up at a Michigan immigration facility where he was held until he could be deported. What immigration officials didn't know or didn't bother to know is that Mr. Ramos Gomez is an American citizen and a better one than most. Born in Michigan, Jilmar was suffering post-traumatic stress syndrome after being a tank crewman in Afghanistan for the U.S. military. He has since been released by ICE, but the ACLU says the detention of this American Marine needs to be investigated. In the Trump regime, the Pentagon is now taking a second look at every recruit who has a green card and connections overseas. The idea is to screen out potential terrorists and spies, but the policy is similar to one from the Trump administration that's been blocked by a federal judge. Some 8,000 green card holders enlist every year. Despite that, and a reported shortage of recruits, the Pentagon has also tried to end a program that gave non-citizens a relatively quick path to citizenship, but that program remains in effect as its proposed end is challenged in court. And just before handing him an immigration defeat on Tuesday... The U.S. Supreme Court gave the president what appeared to be a small victory in his quest to ban transgender people from serving in the military, again in the midst of a personnel shortage. Because it is a court made up of five conservatives and four liberals and no independents, the vote was five to four to let the trans ban go into effect at least until it could be sorted out in court, lower courts, not this one. Most but not all of those lower courts will likely condemn the ban, They were, after all, the courts that issued the injunctions to keep the trans ban from going into effect before now. Those courts ruled that the administration has failed to give any logical reason for the ban, which, to bypass discrimination charges, now targets most but not all trans soldiers. The D.C. Appeals Court, however, voted to uphold the ban after a persuasive argument from then-Defense Secretary James Mattis. Now, the revised trans ban will circuit its way through the courts again, only to land back in the laps of these five and four Supreme Court justices. The new policy is complicated and intimidating to thousands. As many as 7,000 trans troops continue to serve their country in a Trump military that makes their service unwanted. If you don't laugh, you cry. Two more immigration notes. First, walls don't work. Along the part of Arizona's border with Mexico that has a wall around Yuma, immigrants just last week tunneled under it and then turned themselves into Border Patrol. All 376 of them from under a wall. Also last week, Trump told reporters that El Paso, Texas, went from being one of the most unsafe cities in the country to one of the most safe. He said it was because, quote, they built a wall. About all that. First, crime is low in El Paso, just as it is in a lot of happy, quiet towns along the Mexican border, this one a couple miles north of the actual border. A woman who's been a public defender in El Paso for the past three decades says it's always been a safe place to live. Before and after a fence, not a wall, went up there ten years ago. Residents say they have seen no one carrying backpacks, much less the backpacks full of smuggled drugs Trump has described. Trump's claim about crime and drugs are at the heart of his bloody battle for a wall. And those claims, like nearly everything else he says, are lies. 
There was another mass gun murder in the U.S. yesterday when a man barricaded himself in a bank in Sebring, Florida, nearly 90 minutes south of Orlando. Five people were killed before the gunman called police to give them a body count. A SWAT team moved in to negotiate with a 21-year-old named Zephan Zaver, whose father says he wasn't raised to be like this. Zaver was in training to become a correctional officer. The Supreme Court also this week agreed to hear its first gun case in nearly a decade. Gun groups are challenging a law in New York City that limits the carrying of firearms outside the home. This Second Amendment case will be watched closely for clues about how this conservative-leaning court will rule on future gun cases. And with that conservative majority, there may well be more cases. It takes the votes of only four justices to get a case on the docket. The vote was 5-4 to four in 2008 when the court ruled that the Second Amendment guarantees the right to keep a gun in your home for self-defense. Stay tuned. In Chicago, a former police officer has been sentenced to more than six years for the killing of Laquan McDonald. Jason Van Dyke was convicted on multiple charges in the fatal shooting of a 17-year-old who was holding a knife. Van Dyke, who is white, fired 16 shots into the young black man. He's now been convicted of second-degree murder and will now spend years in prison. The day before Van Dyke was handed his sentence, a judge acquitted three officers on charges they'd conspired to cover up the circumstances of McDonald's death. Dash cam video of the killing does not show us what the officers saw. They claim McDonald was advancing toward them. It is the same video, however, that convicted former officer Van Dyke. The Los Angeles teacher strike ended this week and classes are back in session after a week off. The teachers agreed to come back on smaller classes, more nurses and librarians, and the promise of better pay starting with a 6% raise. They also got the standardized testing cut in half and a cap on the number of charter schools. No sooner than the L.A. strike had been settled, Teachers in Denver voted to strike after a year of fruitless talks over a new contract. The vote to strike was 93%, and as in L.A., two-thirds of the teachers belong to the union. In Denver, it appears to be all about the paychecks. First-term California Senator Kamala Harris is the latest Democrat to enter the 2020 presidential primary race. In a field of candidates already featuring minorities and women, Harris is both the daughter of immigrants from India and Jamaica. If elected, she would be the first female president, the first African-American woman, and the first also of Asian heritage. At age 54, Harris was San Francisco's DA and California's attorney general, and she says she will fight for justice, decency, and equality. Republicans call her unqualified. So now there are nine Democrats running. And look for Cory Booker, Colorado's John Hickenlooper, Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, and former L.A. mayor and prosecutor Gil Garcetti to join the fray. Of the nine candidates so far, four are women. At least nine other Democrats are maybes. Romeo the Frog, an emotional support gator, and a snowman defeats a bully. In the final segment, up next. Thank you for using my Amazon link at buzzburbank.com for Valentine's Day and all your shopping year-round at home and at work. Your use of that link helps keep this newscast going and free for the listening, so please bookmark it as your permanent shopping button. I get a little commission from Amazon for every purchase you make that way and for every Amazon Prime membership 
purchased through me, so it really helps power this free weekly report. Just look for the Amazon logo on my website, click that, and land on your very own Amazon page, and then bookmark that. At your desktop, that logo's in the upper right corner at buzzburbank.com. On your phone, it's just under the title, Buzzburbank News and Comment. Now, if you'd rather not use my Amazon link, then please support this free, independent journalism through the PayPal Donate button, and thank you. Even if we do have bigger environmental problems, consider this a bleary-eyed wake-up call. Coffee is going extinct. It's the coffee that grows in the wild that's disappearing, and intentional coffee crops depend on those wild varieties to survive. But diseases, climate change, and the bulldozing of our forests to raise hamburger meat are killing those wild coffee plants. 60% of the species found in the wild are on the verge of vanishing already. 75% of them are in danger. And about a fourth of all species grow in areas that are unprotected from human endeavors. A British researcher told CNN that coffee plants grow in very specific habitats, so rising temperatures and more rain from climate change make growing coffee impossible. She gives the wake-up beans another 10 or 20 years. And as coffee vanishes, the researchers say we can expect coffee to get more expensive and taste worse. The saying goes, Iceland is green and Greenland is ice. The 2019 version, Iceland is green and Greenland is melting. The Arctic is warming twice as fast as the rest of the planet, and the Arctic Circle includes Greenland, where the speed of the melting increased by 400% between 2003 and 2012. Scientists say Greenland is now melting some more, and quickly. Another recent study found that the oceans are warming faster than earlier estimated, and that water is warmer than we expected, and the ice is melting faster than we expected. And that means sea levels will rise more quickly than we had feared, and that beaches and parts of American towns will begin to disappear. Polls show a record number of Americans now, about three out of four of us, concerned about global warming. Concern is heating up as well. People are also taking action recycling their mattresses instead of letting them languish in landfills, altering their diets to eat less coffee-killing hamburger, and matchmaking for a frog. For the past 10 years, a Sahenquis water frog has lived alone in a museum in Bolivia. Conservationists carefully cared for him as he appeared to be the last of his kind on the planet. He was a Romeo without a Juliet until he signed up with Match.com. The conservationists set up Romeo's account and believe they have finally found a mate so that his species can survive. A blind date has been arranged, chaperoned, of course, on Valentine's Day. She has beautiful eyes, said the museum director, who has the girl frog quarantined until the test results come back to make sure everything's A-OK, -okay, no fungus mainly. And they're optimistic the species will survive even if the two frogs don't have chemistry. They have since found more and younger Romeos in case this guy doesn't pan out. And there's always in vitro fertilization. Yes, they have it for frogs. But as I said, optimistic. So much so, they've named this newly found girl Juliet. 
News about life on the far side of the moon, however, isn't so good. Remember the cotton seed that successfully sprouted on the lunar surface inside a Chinese biosphere? Well, it died. It happened once the lunar night fell, which it did for the first time since China's probe landed on the far side of the moon. The lunar night lasts for two weeks. It gets cold, nearly 300 degrees below freezing. The probe itself is in standby mode, waiting for daylight to return for what at the moment is the dark side of the moon. Justice and now science owe a debt of gratitude to comic genius Larry David and his HBO series Curb Your Enthusiasm. In recent years, footage from the show, shot at Dodger Stadium, cleared a man who'd been wrongfully accused of a serious crime. Now, brain scientists have tapped the brains of college students watching that show to understand how the brain timestamps its memories. Using a special MRI, they studied brain patterns synchronized with the events and images in the show. It helped scientists find the two exact spots in the cortex where we record the what and the when and the order of events. Quoting a researcher, we chose this show because we thought it contained events that were relatable, engaging, and interesting. Adding, we also wanted one without a laugh track. In a week that saw RCA records drop R. Kelly after a documentary accused him of sexually abusing underage girls, a note about last week's top movie in theaters, The Upside with Benedict Cumberbatch. That was a Harvey Weinstein project, and you haven't seen the last of them. Weinstein was forced out of his lofty Hollywood perch more than a year ago by sexual abuse allegations. His company was sold for scrap, the movies in progress landing in the laps of others. Hotel Mumbai premieres in March. That's a Weinstein joint. So are Leave No Trace and Captain Fantastic. Keep those in mind when you see them come up. Samuel Jackson and Bruce Willis have the top movie this week with M. Night Shyamalan's Glass. It took in nearly $41 million in the U.S. and Canada. The upside was down to a strong second. The Ruth Bader Ginsburg movie on the basis of sex is hanging in in 10th place and still in theaters. To find it and all the movies, Fandango logo, buzzburbank.com. A superhero movie is for the first time among the nominees for Best Picture at the Oscars this year. That's one of seven nominations for Black Panther. Spike Lee's Black Klansman got six, and it too is on that list, along with the Queen biopic Bohemian Rhapsody, Green Book, A Star is Born, Vice, Roma, and The Favorite. Best Actress nominees include the interesting combination of Glenn Close, Lady Gaga, and Melissa McCarthy for a precisely played dramatic role by Melissa. Rami Malek of Bohemian is a favorite among the Best Actor nominees alongside Christian Bale, Bradley Cooper, Willem Dafoe, and Viggo Mortensen. The Oscar ceremony will be telecast live and in color Sunday evening, February 10th on ABC. The 19-year-old son of the late James Gandolfini will play a younger version of Tony Soprano in a prequel movie by Sopranos director David Chase. It'll be set in Newark, New Jersey, 1967, when Italians and African Americans engaged in race riots. Michael Gandolfini says he's excited and proud to play a role played by his father, who passed from a heart attack at age 51 nearly six years ago now. A sidelined federal worker could drive for Uber, or they could drive the Oscar Mayer Wienermobile. You have less than a week to get in your application for the job of hot dogger. 
You'd have time to get your affairs in order since the wiener doesn't begin its cross-country trek till June. It also ends with the arrival of autumn, so it's temporary work. Maybe the shutdown will be over by then. The Kutztown Police Department doesn't want you to drive afterward, but they would like you to drink for training purposes. The department wants to train its officers to spot various levels of intoxication and teach them how to administer field sobriety tests. When they put the word out on Facebook, the department was overwhelmed with responses from people who wanted to get drunk. They got more than a 1,000 shares in less than a day. The volunteers are being screened to make sure they have a clean record and to make sure they have a designated driver. The drinking begins April 4th. If your hair looks like it was cut by a 7-year-old, then your barber is probably Elijah Hernandez of Houston, Texas. Elijah is the daughter of barber father Frankie Hernandez, and she's been watching Dad cut hair since she was a toddler. He says that by the age of four, she had skills. He added instruction and guidance, and now Elijah is giving great haircuts at the age of seven. A fade, explains the seven-year-old, is when you're cutting hair and it shows the detail of your cut. She's already made her mark in barber competitions across Texas and her family's now scraping together the dough to send her to the Nationals. In Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, up Canada way, they're determined to take back their crown for having the world's biggest statue of a moose. Mac the Moose held that record for 31 years until nearly four years ago some Norwegians put up a bigger one not far from Oslo. It's not even a foot taller than the Canadian moose, and yet things have not been the same in Moose Jaw since those Norwegians put up theirs. The town is now taking suggestions for legit ways to help Mac regain his crown as the tallest moose. Speaking of crowns, one suggestion was that Mac be outfitted with a hat. Put him on skates was one idea. But the top suggestion has been to give Mac a bigger rack to make his antlers bigger. An antler extension fundraiser is now underway. Although both countries have reason to honor Moose, a concerned citizen in Moose Jaw says Canada's national pride is on the line and we can't lose it to Norway over a moose. Police were conducting a search when they found the alligator at a home, not in Florida, but Long Island, New York. The SPCA is handing off the footlong gator to a sanctuary in Massachusetts. In Pennsylvania, a man says his pet gator is an emotional support animal. Most of the time, Wally Gator hangs in the 300-gallon pond in his owner's living room. His hobbies include hiding in the cupboards and watching TV. Joey Henney, who did a decade of TV hunting and fishing shows, has a four-and-a-half-foot-long alligator as a pet. And sure, he, he's attached to Wally. But he also takes Wally on outings to visit the elderly at an assisted living development north of York, PA. He's just like a dog, he tells them. It was dogs that ultimately cornered 29-year-old Dominic Maltzby after he took off running from a traffic stop in Deland, Florida. But it was the horses that chased Dominic into the canine's clutches. Dominic tried to hide under a tree after fleeing his car. That didn't work out, so he took off running through a field of horses who gave chase until he found a fence to jump just in time to meet up with the police dogs. A police helicopter caught the whole thing on video and posted it on Twitter. Humans, machines, and animals worked together to capture young Dominic Maltzby.
In Chicagoland's Lake County, Illinois, they were looking for a man who had endangered the life of a child and the lives of others. The best news is no one was injured. The nine-year-old girl is okay. But the 31-year-old male relative being sought by police had ridden shotgun as the nine-year-old girl drove herself to school. School employees saw her pull up to the drop-off. He had the girl drive because his license had been suspended. It still is. On Ponte Vedra Beach in Florida, a Honda SUV was swept away by the high tide as its owners were distracted by this week's spectacular lunar eclipse. They were in the CRV at the time, but managed to escape before the vehicle was lost to the sea until it could be towed out the next day. Tales from the Eclipse, Florida style. In West Palm Beach, Florida, a couple in their mid-twenties laid down on a darkened road to get their best view of the Eclipse. That's when the cop ran over them. He didn't see them. It was dark. The officer was only doing about five miles an hour, so neither moon gazer was seriously injured this time. And finally, don't take on a snowman you can't handle. Kentucky's Cody Lutz was proud of the giant snowman he'd built with the help of his bride-to-be and her sister. Lucy and her sister helped design the construction of the snowman. It turns out their contribution was genius because, as you may have heard over the past hour, there are mean people in the world. One of them used a truck of some kind to try to vandalize the snowman built by Cody, his fiance, and her sister. But karma can sometimes be instant. The tire tracks Cody found a few days after the snowman was built confirmed that someone rammed a big vehicle into it, only to discover that its base was built around a sturdy tree stump. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and for supporting this free news at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by the Realm Network.